Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, in 1987, a small town Texas woman was murdered in her home. Decades later, her killer puts it all down on paper. We'll discuss the podcast series, Stephenville, from Texas Monthly. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hi, Kevin. Becca, my arm still hurts so yeah? much. I bet. Since last week. Should I give you dead arm? Do not. Oh, don't. Don't even. Oh God! Did you flinch a little? No, I did flinch a little. Flinch a little. This is because I got a shot. You're crying like a little baby. In my rotator cuff, and like (laughs) it's gonna feel better, but it doesn't feel. No one believes men's. No one believes men's pain. (laughs) Also with us, ouch, ouch, owie. (laughs) No one's doing a podcast on our pain, Toby. (laughs) Literally everything is about your pain. (laughs) Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, author of the Piper Green series of cozy mysteries, Laura Bricker. Hey. Laura. Hey, Rebecca. And finally, our resident Downing Thomas, author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, that's about UFOs, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hey, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. So, Kevin. Yeah. This is obviously Monday's program. It is obvious. What is coming up on our next program? Well, on Thursday, we've got another CWO classic. We're going to be listening to, or I should say, re-listening to season two of Accused. Oh, that was the one with the the salt thing? Uh, this was the one where we actually had some problems with the technical side. Oh, of yeah. This so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we were not a unanimous decision on this one. But next week, we're going to be talking about the paranormal slash wrongful conviction true crime series from Hulu. It's called Demons and Saviors. So I actually do have a follow up that I wanted to talk about just briefly in the podcast, even though it's kind of yeah. like somebody's personal story. They said I could share it without sharing their name. Yeah. Even though they said they said I could share their name, but I'm not going to. Yeah. So um, my wonderful friend and colleague told me that she went to um, the gynecologist to get an IUD put in. And uh, I knew this was happening because she told me it was happening. And she was going to get it put in for some for medical reasons, um, you know, for other reasons too, but also some, for, for medical reasons. And everybody, including me, told her that shit fucking hurts. Like, take some Advil before you go. And she listened to the retrievals and, and like she listened to like all. And everybody told her horrible. It's going to be it, it could potentially be horrible. Some people were like mine wasn't so bad, but she heard all these horrible stories about it. She watched the TikToks, whatever. <laughs> what? And oh, yeah, there's a whole TikTok thing about this. It's crazy. She goes to this doctor in Boston and she walks in and she says to the doctor, hey, I just want to let you know, I know this can be really bad and I'm really nervous about it. The doctor says, 
I'm really sorry you've heard that, but I use lidocaine because I think it's monstrous when people don't use any kind of anesthetic for women when mm. they do procedures at the gynecologist's oh. office. And I was like, wait, what? I have what? never heard of that Where's before. Where's this doctor? I'm going next Apparently time. Apparently this doctor uses lidocaine for anything, like anything involving like cervical stuff. She, all you feel is the shot and then that's that. I'm like, apparently this is a thing that exists and we need to make this common. So yeah, just- but they ever get like a shot in the shoulder of cortisone. <laughs> I mean, really. Kevin, this is like when I go to the dentist and I have my own gas mask. Yes. I just uh, want to mm-hmm. say out there, women, this is possible because I've heard of a doctor that does it. And I think we just need to all tell our doctors that there is a doctor who does it so that they start doing it too. And I just wanted to make that announcement on the podcast. Why not call ahead of time and ask and then maybe demand. And if there's enough demand, maybe more people will start. Exactly. Yeah. And now (laughs) I'm sure sure this person's going to find that it wasn't covered by our stupid insurance (laughs) at work or whatever, but. (laughs) I'd raise uh, my hand, but I can't move my arm. So (laughs) Anyway. um, All right. I just wanted to throw that out there. So thank you for letting me share your story, friend and colleague. I wanted to make sure that that was something that other women could hear as well. So basically, if your doctor does not offer lidocaine, you should say, I would actually prefer it if you could give me lidocaine before we do this procedure. Exactly. And I heard it was seven shots too, but she only felt the first one. Seven shots? Yeah. You know, you only, you only feel you the first rabies? shot of lidocaine. No. <laughs> but you only, you only feel the first lidocaine. If you guys are better than a dentist, you only feel the first one. I don't know. I feel all of them. When they stick that fucking needle in, even when I take my gas, when I go to the dentist, I'm like, fuck this. You must have redheaded genes if you feel all of them. I just feel everything. My poor little friend, Jason, it doesn't even affect him when he has Novocaine and they just keep giving it to him. And he's like, "Ah." well, he definitely has redheaded genes. He's very fair. I do hope they do like what the dentist does when they did and just like hide the needle. So you don't like, you know, they sneak it up on you so they don't show you just how big it is. Before that dental needle is huge. I I close my eyes. I just close my eyes and like put on that dental iPod that they give me. They're like, do you want to listen to the iPod? I'm like, yes. Yes. I, I asked the dentist about the needle. I was like, why is that needle so long? Is it just because you had to like get it inside my mouth? She's like, oh, no, you got to stick it way in there. Yeah. And it, I was like, it oh. even has like the little finger holdy things that they can like get like leverage against your face. It's yeah. wild. All right. I think it's time to talk about this murder podcast. All right, let's talk about the murder podcast. <sighs> Good journalism. Let's talk God damn about it. Play it. a clip. Somebody play a clip. Let's drop that first clip right now. On that sweltering Tuesday evening in July 1987, Joe Atkins found something no parent should ever have to find. He found his daughter, naked, her hands tied behind her back, her head sunk into a bathtub full of black water. After Susan Wood's killer died from cancer, his diary about the 1987 case was discovered. The 30-year-old woman was murdered in her Stephenville, Texas home. Friends and family were convinced the killer was her estranged husband, Michael. Okay, so she asked you to stay over there. You're nailing windows shut. Is she just scared of somebody getting in? She's scared of Mike. Mike. And um, she just wants to make sure she's safe. Had Stephenville police taken the story of a teenage rape victim more seriously, they may have spotted a big clue to the killer's identity. But it would take decades and advances in technology to finally solve the cold case. He says, hey, we, we got a hit on, on, uh, on your fingerprints. And he said, uh, we, got, we got a match on the mirror and we got a match off of a Coke can. And I said, OK, who, who are they? Who do they belong to? Stephenville from Texas Monthly revisits the Woods case. Host Brian Burra sheds light on the effects of the crime on a small town and how it did wrong by the outsiders caught up in the case. 
He also explores the mind of a murderer through his own writings. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Stephenville. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time codes in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. So Laura, Texas Monthly has become quite a brand in podcasting, right? Yeah, and I think in podcasting, but when I think of Texas Monthly, I mean, Texas has a lot of really bizarre crime stories. And Texas Monthly is a publication that you know you can turn to for extremely comprehensive enterprise investigative reporting on those two crime stories. And, you know, we listened to Tom Brown's body. That was another story we heard. So, you know, you're getting reporting that is top notch, sourcing that is top notch. And, you know, they have the journalistic chops to do the stories. I think my only issue with this story is that the podcast version to me felt like just sort of an adaptation of the written nonfiction narrative version of the story. And for me, that made it feel a little dense at times, but it was still an incredibly reported story. Kevin, what do you think about the Texas Monthly brand and Brian and, you know, sort of the confluence of those things oh, yeah. when we've gotten to this podcast? I mean, Skip Hollinsworth, just like legendary. I mean, and if you're looking for Stephenville, I, I mean, I call it Steveville because we're on a more intimate basis. <laughs> but uh, Stephenville, it's in it's actually in season two of the Tom Brown body. Joke, the Thank way. you. Was it? Yeah. yeah. It's in the Tom Brown's body feed. If you're the Thomas trouble. Brown's body. Tom, yes, yeah, I don't know Tom that well. So it's Thomas Brown. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Brian is sort of this, you know, real heavyweight uh, as far as a writer goes. I mean, he writes for Vanity Fair as well. Uh, he wrote the, the book uh, Barbarians at the Gate and some other stuff that, you know, I can't I can't quite remember everything in his uh on his CV, but um, he's really great. I wish they kind of hadn't marketed the podcast in a certain way that it's like Brian returns to his small town roots because he's not from this town. He's from a small Texas town, but you know, it's not a Capote like drive to tackle your demons. He does have his own small town crime story, but that just felt like unnecessary to kind of like, ah, he's got a connection to it. And it's like, it's, it's fine. You don't really need that. It just kind of felt shoehorned and uh, otherwise, He's very good here. That actually is one of the problems I have with the podcast, too. I don't really have many problems with the podcast, but one huge distraction for me is the beginning of the podcast. Uh, Brian has this very nostalgic, I love Texas sort of like little soliloquy at the mm -hmm. beginning. And I'm always like, how? <laughs> <laughs> Why? You're literally about to tell us how fucked up this place is and about the super fucked up thing that happened in the place that you're telling us that you ostensibly love. I don't have to call this case in Laramie. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're, the opposite it, side. But of it, you're yeah. literally like, you're like, this is a place that I love, and like, you're literally about to tell us about how fucked up it is. And it's also like, it feels very, um, and there's just something about it that feels very out of place and out of touch and out of time right now to sort of like, like start it that way. And then later in the podcast, he also talks about how different he is than the people he's covering because. Yeah, he grew up in a small Texas town, but he was also the son of like wealthy people. Like his father was a bank president. So he doesn't really come at it from an insider. He's actually not really an insider, even if he's from there. And I and I like it when journalists sort of acknowledge where that what they are and what they aren't when they do a story. And I just feel like I also agree that was unnecessary. But the sort of I love Texasness right before telling us how fucked up it is. It just I'm like, don't don't do that. Just don't. Just it's fucked up. Can I give the counterpoint? Yeah, to that? give the I'd love you to give the counterpoint to that. Well, I, I mean, I, th I think there's something to be said for having complicated feelings about a place and that you can like things for the things you like about it and you can hate the things that you hate about it. You know, we talk about parachute journalism 
And I, I think part of it is, is that this isn't like for a guy with his pedigree to be covering essentially a small town murder and to make it clear that like, even though he didn't have the exact lives that these people did or in the exact town, but he's not, he's not parachuting in. Like he's familiar with the culture. This is what he grew up with. It it didn't really make a difference to me one way or the other, but I can see why they did it. You know, at the end, there's a little writerly thing at the very, very end. Again, it's sort of talking about Texas and about like some of the things that he's, he likes about Texas or is nostalgic about Texas. I, I don't think it's necessary to just like pile a ton of shit on a place because something messed up happened. You know, this is a place where a lot of people live, like some people like it, and it doesn't have to be because of this bad stuff that happens and they support it. There's there's more to the the culture or society or whatever than the fucked up stuff that happens in this case. I don't disagree, but there is a rosiness that well, he's, places but places are talked about about it with a rosiness in context that for me doesn't work. So I guess I guess that's just what I'm saying. It didn't work for me in that in that way. Also the ending didn't work. You can't really blame the town today. The town that sheltered Scott Hatley blamed Michael Woods and turned up its nose at Shannon Myers is long gone. Could something like this happen in today's Stephenville? Me, I'd like to believe it couldn't. It was just, it was a very nostalgic, lovely, it's sort of like when you watch an HGTV show and they talk about this old Southern house with these plantation shutters. And I'm like, don't yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> I didn't think it, I didn't think it was quite that bad. No, but he's but, also like, he's kind of a genial guy though. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was one of the interesting things. It, it, it's what made this like the tone of this, I thought was so interesting just because he just seems like such a sort of genial, friendly dude going and, and looking into this crazy case. And, I don't know. I mean, it worked. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, the thing that's is not, very that's straight. Not a criticism. No, I agree. The thing is so straight otherwise, which is why those moments stuck out to me. And yeah. so, and I have it out of the way, everything I didn't like about the podcast. So that's that. Okay, <laughs> good. So, but the title is Stephenville, right? So we say like that story is making a promise about what this is through the title. And I'm not sure if I know more about Stephenville or how it's different from any other small town. Like, it didn't quite feel like a character, like Mayberry or Peyton Place, right? When they try to make that, like, a whole character. But his observation that, like, um, that the two people who justice was denied for it, they were outsiders, like everybody who still, you know, grew up there for a billion years, like, they're still on the inside. But that whole Stephenville is, is gone. Like, that Stephenville is gone, and it's not coming back. Interesting, but, you know... It's like, well, what's the new Stephen Bill? It's like, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah, but boss. they say it's the same. People are still cruising. The, the, the diner looks exactly the same as it did 50 years ago. People wearing the same exact clothes. Are they still they doing the drag? Laura, you'd love to do the drag, oh, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, that's like cruising the main drag in town. That's like life growing up in Vermont because there wasn't a lot to do. And we Long had the Island one guy. Too. Hate to break it to you. It happened on we Long Island, We had the guy too. in back and forth in town. His name was Bookham. Because he wanted to be a cop, book him, book go him. back and forth in his uh, <laughs> Toyota truck, book him. And uh, that was literally what you did uh, <laughs> because there was nothing else to do besides go out in the woods and party in a field and start a fire. Even in places where there were things to do, that's what we okay. fucking did. That is, okay. You so know? I just, yeah. okay. You know why? Because when you have cars, you can have sex in them and drink in them <laughs> and meet up with other people in them. Like, I don't know. I'm not just I, going yeah. straight line up and down the same street. 
No, we had more of like a we had more of a going places and sitting in parking lots, yeah. cruising. We didn't just you drive had a up rolling and down. sex box, is what you had. Yes. Okay. We had more okay. of rolling sex box and an eating box and like hanging out and drinking box situation. Not drinking alcohol, but like you know. Well, what What did you do? Just like you know, you'd pick up your friends and go somewhere and get takeout and hang out. Like you, you were not. We weren't allowed to hang out at our house. You remember, like in the eighties and nineties and the nineties, you weren't allowed to ever be inside your own house. Yeah. Yeah, so we just like use our friends' cars for that. Like you're never like you're never allowed to be inside your. It was always like get out of here. You're never allowed to be in here. So like use your cars as if it were your house kind of situation. Yeah. Well, yes. then you could take it someplace, and then you could download a podcast from Patreon. Oh. And Ooh. you know it doesn't matter if you're going up and down the same road. Is this the business bit. section? Yeah, it's the business section. Fuck. I already started the music, Rebecca. I don't know if you can hear it or not. Oh my god. Toby has so many points he needs to make. Toby, then I I won't go too, too long, Toby. I'm sorry. But I will say in in Manchester, New Hampshire, Manchester, Elm Street is the longest street in America that is a dead end at both Mm -hmm. ends. Really? And and that's where people would cruise. Like, you couldn't get around... How do you know that that is true? Because I heard about it before the internet. (laughs) (laughs) So if you join us at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you get all sorts of great stuff. We've got the crime writers on after show and uh, the the latest one we're talking about. Ooh, that smell. What's that smell? We'll just leave it there for you. Toby's got a new episode of the deep dive coming out. Tell us about the name of the book, Toby. It's called uh, In the Mouth of the Wolf. It is about a crusading journalist in Mexico who was murdered it's a very interesting look at, at journalism, uh, Mexican political and drug culture, and uh, had an excellent panel of journalism people to discuss it. Also, we have uh, podcasts such as Leave It to Bricker and our own Married with Podcast, where Rebecca and I dish out relationship advice. I know Laura wants to jump in and talk about her upcoming Leave yeah. It to Bricker. Go ahead. The upcoming Leave It to Bricker is one of my bucket list items, yeah. which is learning to round up cows on horseback. Mm. I have an outfit. I have a horse, allegedly, and there are four cows that need to be rounded up. So A whole four cows, huh? Four cows. I don't think that's a herd of cows. I think my friend Jen says it's a club of cows. Also, um, at this farm that I'm going to be going to, if I really want to get into this, I can learn how to lasso. Woohoo! But you have to do that on the ground before you do it on horseback. Also, we don't want you to listen to our other podcasts. These are their stories, the Law & Order podcast. Uh, this week, we're doing one of these special two-part episodes that they did on SVU. This one is the one where uh, the serial killer gives them advice about who the real killer is. And the other serial killer is the medical examiner. Oh, And please sign it's up. discount the silence of the lambs. Yeah. <laughs> It's the silence of the sheep, or I don't know. It's the silence of the sheeples. Yes, they keep going back to the same beach and body parts keep washing up. It's like, how far out are they really dropping? The silence of the goats. Silence of the goats. (laughs) Man. No sightings, no traffic cams. Does everyone know he dresses in drag? Alerted state troopers and the FBI. Oh, they already know. The ME's office, the mayor's office, the people in my office, people are falling over there themselves to point fingers. I get it. It's a mess, all right? No leave, no vacation, no... Yes, I'll hold for the governor. Yeah, if you want more information about what we got going on in the world here, just sign up for our newsletter. Comes out on Thursdays. Go to crimewriterson.com and you'll get all sorts of stuff like CWO Behind the Scenes, links to merch, get CR, Cat of the Week, and the Tweet of the Week, and all sorts of great stuff. So just get us there. All right, so Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Marika and Marissa H. 
Wow. Sometimes people don't put their whole name in. Good for them. So I'm just like, okay. Marika, Marissa, love you guys. Thanks for supporting us on Patreon. Thanks to everyone who supports us there. And Thanks for yeah, leaving a little mystery. And, you know, pays for all that extra content. Thanks for everybody who listens to the business section, even if you don't. And I hope you consider going back to our Patreon because it's pretty freaking lit. All right, Kevin, is that send the business section? That sends the business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out right now. Can I just clarify one thing? Both detectives were named Don, right? It was Donnie. Don and Donnie, yeah. I'm just double-checking. Yeah, Don and Donnie. Because yeah. there was an episode called Don, and I was like, all right, there's one Don with bad tape and one Don with <laughs> good tape, and that's the only way I can tell them apart. I was just double-checking on that. All right, so Toby, this is a story about, like, you know, people being, being singled out either because they're a misfit or they're not. Is that, like, typical in crime, you think? It seems to be, it certainly doesn't ever seem to be in the reverse where like the normal guy gets fingered and the the weird guy, they're like, oh no, there's no way he could have done it. Um, <laughs> so weird yeah. to be a killer. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this guy, Michael Woods, like he doesn't really come off as like really much of a prize back in the day. Like there's a lot of talk about him, like drinking beer and lifting weights uh, and not looking for a job, but He's a misfit in this like cowboy town. He's got like long hair and he, you know, in a country Western town, he wants to be a rock star. Bob and, Seger. And yeah. And, and so in the end, like his life is essentially ruined, or at least he feels like that it is by this. It's not just an accusation. People just assume that he's guilty and are wondering why he's not in jail and, you know, he has to leave and, and is intimidated enough where he doesn't feel like he can really travel from this place in Indiana where he ends up. So, and that's kind of actually, it's funny because when Kevin was mentioning the title, Stephenville, like I kind of thought of it as being sort of like Chinatown or whatever, where, where sort of the root of this guy's problems is in, is in Stephenville and he doesn't want to go back and, and all this stuff. So anyway, I, I just, you know, it's a story that we've heard a bunch of times before and, you know, there's some fame like Damien Eccles and stuff. It's it's if you're if you're the misfit in town, you're you're kind of a target for everybody, including the police. And if you have any connection, no matter how tenuous, in this case, it wasn't that tenuous with a victim. You know, you you, you may find yourself in trouble. Yeah, it doesn't help that Michael Woods is uh, Kevin, kind of a douche, right? <laughs> Hope you clear leather. <laughs> Can you walk me through what happened? Yeah, they pulled up in a car, informed me that we were going to the airport. I was getting on a plane. I pulled back my shirt, showed them a piece and said, no, we're having a gun battle here or you're leaving. Go for it. Clear leather. Bet you don't clear leather. <laughs> How many times did he say that? He's just saying, yeah, I'm going to go down. We're going to draw. Quick yeah. draw. I mean, yeah. he's, he's not Leo Schofield. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like. Obviously, you know, his life ends up being very sad because of of this. You know, he can't really. Aren't you wondering what happened with a lawsuit? Like, does he had no, no longer have to pay that money? I mean, he lost uh, a civil lawsuit with his true. family. Yeah. And now he's been like shown not to be guilty. Like he but he's still on the hook for that money. Right. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question to ask him. I don't, did they, I don't know if Brian they followed that. up on it, but that's how, that, that civil cases are separate from criminal cases. He probably is still on the hook for that money. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a sad story. I mean, I think he does some sort of tough talking, kind of self mythologizing here, but, uh, but he's not the bad guy, mm. you know, but you can see why everybody would think that he was. Mm. 
So we need to talk about this other victim, Laura, um, Shannon, yeah. who went to the police, obviously, after the murder and tells this incredibly credible story of being raped by Scott Hatley, who had been her boyfriend, but there is no disputing that he raped her. He obviously had raped her earlier, but then this was obviously a, you know, abduction rape scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, she did everything right. She did everything. Right. Not that there's anything people do things, quote, wrong, but like there's, there's you know, in, in terms of what victims are, quote, supposed to do um, after a sexual assault, she did all of those things. And look what happened to her. And I found myself questioning, why the hell did they have to convene a grand jury to potentially um, arrest this guy on this rape charge? Well, this is victim blaming. And it didn't. So the first time that she was raped by him and she went to the authorities, like nothing happened. The second, and I can't remember if she went to the authorities or her parents the first time, but the second time, the one that really sticks with me is the second time because she says every time like, and I knew I shouldn't do this, but I did. And so the second time she, because she's like, I want to know why he did it the first time. Like, why? And she's like, my teenage self can't understand this guy who's been telling me he loves me. Although I think it's personally, as I was listening to like, and their encounters are just having sex in a bathroom at a friend's house. I was like, oh, this is just not good. After the first rape, he reaches out again. They meet at a laundromat and then leave from the laundromat where he proceeds to rape her and beat her to the point that she goes in and out of consciousness. I mean, this is a horrible rape. I could feel my face swelling as he, you know, hit me countless times with his fist and um, he would pull my hair I I could feel the, the blood coming out of my ear. And she's dropping things like her hairpin and her bra and the beret she was wearing because she's like, these will be clues when I die. So when she gets out of there and then she said she's never like run so fast in her life as when he finally drops her off back at the laundromat and she's able to like look down because she's like, shit, he's going to see my face. He's going to see how fucked up he's made me. And she goes to her parents and then she goes to the one doctor that she trusts to examine her, who is somebody that she knows. And then you you hear about the nurses who probably haven't done a rape kit before being the ones to carry that out. How brave for a teenage girl at that age and stage in life to be able to go through with that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. How brave. And how brave to be able to tell the story as an adult. As an adult to talk about what she went through. And she was talking about fighting for her life. But I think it's just when you hear her story and then later as we hear the diary entries, which are a whole other story, like, holy shit, like, can you believe all the diary? It all adds up in terms of, this case and the perpetrator in this case and how this case played out. But she was, she as a victim was particularly heartbreaking just because of, again, you're in small town, Texas, and there's a lot of stigma in coming forward. And she did. And she wasn't taken seriously. We need to talk about the particularly laws too that did that, that hurt her. 
One law was that statutory rape law where, which, by the way, I'm not 100 percent against the statutory rape law because sometimes 16 year olds and 15 year olds do have consensual sex. And then the parents use it as an excuse to send the you know boyfriend or girlfriend to prison when like you shouldn't. But this statutory rape law did not shield her, even though he was in his 20s and she was 15 and she said it was not consensual. Second, um, you know, they had the law that said that you could use allegations of her being loose as a defense, a rape defense against the guy. So they basically sent a private investigator around talking to people who basically were like, yeah, she likes to party. She likes to whatever. And those and the testimony that she was like, quote, a wild child was held against her. Meanwhile, you have Shannon saying at home she was being sexually abused. Um, This was a troubled kid who did everything right as a victim and who had no like, I mean, this is the kind of girl who typically wouldn't tell. And she did. And it completely worked against her. And it wasn't just because the cops didn't believe her. It was because the law worked against her. It was the perfect storm of bullshit. It was unbelievable. Yeah, and all of those things done to hurt and humiliate her. And also, she's uh, she's an again an outsider, right? She's the one who came into town, and she's weird because she parties or whatever. So, she's also marginalized in that way. But you know, I I kept thinking like when I'm listening to her talk now, how she keeps using the phrase "my 16 year old self" when explaining what she did and what happened to her. I feel like maybe she thinks she's like trying to justify to the world why she did what she did and maybe try to say, explain her victimization. And like, I understand it's not necessary. We get that. Like, you, you know, it, it seems to me like part of her wants to like say, but you, but you don't get it. I was just a kid. No, we, we get it. We get, you are not responsible for any of that. So it doesn't matter that you, you were 16 or, uh, or, you know, that you, the way you acted is different than maybe you think an adult would act. Um, I think it's just part of her, her truth and how she's working through it. Um, but I just thought, I, I felt like, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. That isn't so, we get it. We're adults now. We all grew up. We get what, you, you know, what you've been through. Yeah. And, you know, you're a survivor. Yeah. I think what's important, though, to talk about something like that in retrospect means you also have to talk about something like that in real time. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying you wouldn't, Kevin. I know that you would, but... You also have to not question people in real time when they make bad decisions. Because yeah. very often those bad, because quote, bad decisions are not their decisions. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And in the end, the thing we learn is that there's no right or wrong thing to do. Right. And it's just, you know, it's not, that's not my truth, but I recognize her truth. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I just, uh, I feel for her. Yeah. So we need to talk about Scott Hadley's diary, uh, Toby, because that is the kickoff of the podcast. And then we spend a lot of time on it later. If I do have another criticism of the podcast, it is that. <laughs> um, do you think his diary is particularly illuminating and that we, you know, should be spending this much time on? I'm just curious about what you think about what his diary actually reveals ultimately. So I it's interesting because I think it it does seem unusual to me that you've got this his thoughts that are just written for himself, I think essentially. I mean, he's not trying to put on airs or, or or try to like make excuses or whatever. This is ostensibly like what he feels at the time that he's writing it about that. So that's kind of interesting. But <laughs> it's just basically what you'd expect, right? It didn't feel like I didn't walk away thinking like, wow, I can't believe that 
a person like that would actually think these things. It's like exactly what you'd expect. Like he's pissed off at his mom and he has violent ideation and he's angry and he feels like he's going to hurt somebody and you know, all this stuff. And it's just like, it's not, I mean, it's, it's truth, but it's not like revelatory. It's, it doesn't really change the way I think you perceive him. And maybe, maybe I'm off on this, but after I heard all that, I was like, and I think that that expert they brought in was like, yeah, he's not special. Mm. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, this kind of seems like what you would kind of write a bad guy like this to be like if you weren't like particularly imaginative and trying to come up with something clever. You'd just be like, oh, yeah, he's just this fucking angry, pissed off guy. Um, and that seemed to be what he was. Around this point in his autobiography, Hadley pauses to try and explain himself. He insists that the crimes he committed, the women he hurt, the woman he killed, none of it was voluntary. He says, quote, fire is seductive. It draws you in and puts you in a trance. You are burned before you even notice it. I'm curious, Lar, because Toby said something interesting that made me think, and I was thinking of this when I was listening to it. I often wonder, like, people like this who are writing, you know, journals, like, it's ostensibly just for themselves, but I always think they feel like they're writing something that they believe that someday will be important, like somebody else will read it. And like, it's like, this is my my story, right? <laughs> like, and on some level, even if they, even if on the, in the surface, they're not thinking someone will read it, like, why would you, like, it, it's almost like, um, they're because because there is there are like revisionist there's revisionist history in his mm-hmm, little book mm-hmm. why if not because in some, on some level he thinks someday someone's going to find this and this is going to be the story of my life well there is that but i'm going to say as somebody that journals a lot about things in my life i'm not doing it necessarily because i think somebody's going to read it yeah i'm doing it because i'm trying to figure out certain things that have happened in my life yeah so there is that. I mean, I have my little remarkable tablet and I sit out and journal on that when I'm having some deep thoughts. But in this no, case- we know what to steal from Laura's house. You know, <laughs> steal the remarkable. You will get all the fantasy that's remarkable. Oh my God, it'll be crazy. Um, and there's not even a password. Ah! Um, but the fact that this guy had 200 pages- I'm cutting and- that from the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think to me, I just thought it was so interesting because- in a way, like he dies, so we don't really know. But then, in a way, we do know because we have these 200 pages where he's going on about, first of all, vodka and cough syrup. I, that has nothing Features. to do with anything. Yeah. Other than Scissor. the fact that I'm like, what the fuck, man? And he is really trying to make sense of how he got here and talking about his childhood and talking about his relationships and and then detailing his crimes, which is like, and again, like you said, he's detailing his crimes from his perspective. So we're getting one side, we're getting his side. But at the same time, what an interesting window into this case because with him dying in 2021 and then, you know, not really getting a complete picture, at least there's some information out there in terms of answers. But he he was a really interesting character as a murderer in this because he was somebody that I think on some level did want to be self-reflective and did want to, like, he's not just writing it because he's like a narcissist who wants to write about himself. I think he's writing about it because he's like, what 
brought me here. And, and, and he is, yes, giving his version of what brought him here. But I still think it's really interesting because it's like, how often do you get 200 pages of a window into somebody like this? You know what I mean? It's, it, I thought it was fascinating. And maybe I, I shouldn't say this, but I think he's actually a good writer. I say, and I say that in a professional sense because as somebody who's confronted with bad writing week after week, uh, I'd say as a writer, he's actually, you know, skillful. His writing is an odd mix of candor and minimization. So he's talking about stuff that he doesn't need to. And sometimes he's, you know, he appears to be self-flagellating. But then other times there where he's really just sort of telling a better version of what happened than what actually happened. I think he does think that someone is going to read this someday. Um, and someone did, and it kicked and off someone this reporting. Did, and I can tell that's right. Is, we yeah. surprised you. That's what kicked off this reporting was the discovery. Oh of no, 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 no! I think this is definitely. I mean, yeah. I think probably without this diary, there's probably not a lot of a podcast. I don't know if Brian would be as interested in this particular story. Um, but I'm with Toby. The fact that the researcher took a look at it and went, "Yeah, this guy's just a regular schmo. He's not. He's kind of unimpressive." I think that that was uh, that was a good insight. I liked that insight because usually the, these guys are. They're just assholes who are bad guys and they are boring. Like mm-hmm. most criminals are actually really fucking boring. Most murderers are boring. You know, most rapists are boring. The most ex- in- most extraordinary thing about them is the worst thing they ever did. And they like to think that they're so interesting. Just like podcasters. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Stephenville? It's the latest podcast from the Texas Monthly. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Stephenville? Yeah, I'm going to give this a thumbs up. I mean, this is a case that they're reexamining in this, what I consider a sort of Texas monthly traditional long form narrative nonfiction format. So as compared to certain podcasts we listen to that are a little bit shorter and snappier in the delivery style, this is not going to be that. So there were times that I struggled with that because it's, it's very dense. There is a lot of information. However, it is so well reported that I can get past that because it's, again, Stephenville, this town, it's a character. It's a town that is like so many towns, small towns around the country with preconceived ideas about people. We didn't even get to talk about Michael so much, the biker husband and all the bacon bit sandwiches. Bacon bit sandwiches. Things. Bacon bit sandwiches they were surviving on. But I, I think this was a really interesting and well-told podcast. And I I did go read the companion article online, which to me actually was easier to digest because it was basically the same story. So I think some of the writing here is more writing for magazine, not necessarily audio, but it's such a good story. The sourcing is so well done. The story is so well told that I still give this a big thumbs up. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Stephenville? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, the, the reporting is excellent. Um, they've got great interviews. It's a, it's a certain kind of story. It's a story about outsiders not getting justice, getting blamed or not believed or things like that. Uh, Brian Burrow, the, uh, the host, is, is just sort of this extremely genial guy. I, I, liked his personality, how he kind of walked us through everything. Um, it's inter- like one of the things you get out of it, and I don't think this is a spoiler, is is you do get uh, a, a chance at one point to kind of see through the eyes of the, the person who's a perpetrator in this. But it's not, 
you know, it, it just more confirms how kind of lacking <laughs> in, in interesting things there is, which is kind of an interesting conclusion for uh, a podcast like this. But yeah, I, I, I liked it. It's well written, except for a couple of parts where, I, like Laura was saying, it seems like it's written for, for like a magazine uh, opening and ending. Uh, it doesn't really come across too well in a podcast. Uh, but that you know, that's kind of quibbling stuff. Otherwise, this is like high quality podcast. So I give it a, a, a strong thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm going thumbs up. I neglected to mention, you know, uh, Brian is also, I think, very genial. And I, there was that scene with uh, Don Miller. Don Miller says, I Which know one is he? Don Miller is the, 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 I guess, the more modern day detective. Okay, thank you. And he says, uh, I know for a fact he killed more people. And Brian says, oh, you mean, you know, you have evidence? Like, uh, no. It's like, it's like, I'm thinking, like, you don't know what I know for a fact actually means. The for a fact part is all you really need to know about law enforcement. They know for a fact the stuff that they think. Um, so in any event, uh, I thought that yeah, this was good. Generally speaking, the episodes, I didn't think they need to be as long as they were. It just started to feel a little bit like they were getting stretched, but it got pulled together, you know, pretty well. I liked listening to everybody's perspective about Stephenville itself as a, you know, as a, a central theme, as a character, the interiority of it. I think, you know, if someone's going to listen to this, then maybe think, keep that in mind, how that plays into it, what your opinion is about that. Um, I, uh, I did like it and I'm recommending it. So thumbs up. Yeah, I'm giving this a thumbs up. I, I liked it. Um, there are, I have a couple of issues with it. I think it's a little heavy on nostalgia. I think it needs better signposting throughout. I mean, I've I've mentioned a couple of times there are two men named Don. They are they both have the same job and we don't really get any reminders of that. And I have to sort of remind myself of that again and again and again. And that's just something that we could, you know, get more of in the podcast, generally speaking, not just with that one guy that actually happens a few times. Another example is there's a tremendous twist in the podcast where it turns out that there's this overlapping of people that we meet one way in the case. And it turns out that that we we we, sh we also have them involved in a different way in the case. And there should be more dramatically made of that moment with some better signposting. Um, there's some Moments where I think some signposting not enough is made of place and how important it is. Um, and then in other places, too much of is made of place and how important it is. So there's just some, um, I think, authorial perspective that I think is bled into this that isn't audience focused. It's more author focused. And those were those would be my editorial criticisms of it. That being said, it's a straightforward story. There are some failures here in the criminal legal system that let a victim down, more than one victim down, and certainly let um, a potential wrongfully convicted person down who ended up, you know, not uh, having that fate. But I actually really, really think it's, it's, a, it's a strong podcast and worth listening to. And my criticisms are not huge, but, you know, I have them anyway, because I always do. All right. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. The week. Germany is trying all it can do to alleviate its problems with their trains not running on time. One third of all Deutsche Bahn trains are arriving late. 
It often leads to a cascading effect of riders missing their connections or overcrowded subsequent train cars. This is particularly irksome to the German people who pride themselves on punctuality. Even neighboring Switzerland is considering a ban on German trains, which are making their own trains late. Deutsche Bahn is hurriedly investing in upgrades to fix the issue. Meantime, they're trying everything they can to make their passengers feel better. This includes employing the well-known German skill of stand-up comedy to make funny announcements about why the train they're on is two hours behind schedule. One of its more bizarre attempts to soothe nerves is aromatherapy. They've been pumping the coaches full of calming scents, but no amount of lavender and eucalyptus is enough to make you forget you're going to miss your connection in Dusseldorf. Panel, it could work. What will be the new train-inspired perfume to be sold in Germany? Laura Bricker, what do you think? It will be Diesel Traum. What does that mean? Diesel Dreams. <laughs> what do you think, Toby Ball? What's the new train-inspired perfume to be sold in Germany? Uh, Schweiss und Diesel, <laughs> which is sweat and diesel. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Kevin? Uh, it's a Swafitz Weiflung. What is that? Destination desperation. Oh my God, you guys really worked on this. I'm so I love impressed. Yours, Kevin. Thank you. Oh my God. Thank you. Wow, you really worked on this. All right, that's going to do it for us. But before we go, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do have a cat of the week this week. It is a walrus. Oh, wow. Oh, cuckoo, kachoo. Cuckoo, kachoo. Okay, hold on. Let me tell you about that's the walrus. Mrs. Robinson. So I am the walrus, Rebecca. Oh, okay. A 200-pound walrus calf found alone miles from the ocean in Alaska, is being cared for and bottle-fed and is receiving round-the-clock cuddling. From animal welfare workers trying to keep the one-month-old little walrus alive, it's a male. It was found and flown to the Sea Life, Alaska Sea Life Center. And anyway, I love the fact, the reason I picked this, is it's getting around-the-clock cuddling. Because who doesn't want around-the-clock cuddling? And it described, so they described the cuddling. They trained the staff to give the walrus the option to have a warm body to lean up against, which he has been taking advantage of almost constantly. So I hope they haven't given it, I'm not seeing a name yet, um, but I am definitely going to be following this um, because I want to see if the cuddling helps this little walrus um, live to See another day. What does that remind you? It reminds you of Briscoe, right? Just leaning <laughs> against the people. All right, Laura Bricker. I am the Eggman. Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you and let you know that their walrus is alive. How can they find you on social media? I'm not sure I'm going to cuddle your walrus, but I will come cuddle your cats. Wow. So I'm at Laura Bricker on Twitter. That's what she said. All right, tell you about folks <laughs> want to reach out to you and say hello. How can they find you online? At Toby Ball and H. Kevin Flynn, how can you be found? I'm at Elementary Penguin. Really? Singing Hare Krishna. All right. If you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. If you spell that backwards, it says Paul is dead. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Get episodes early and ad-free at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll also get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdett. The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin Flynn. 
This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement, where we also plan our weekends hitting, quote, the drag. Hey, good looking, and we'll be back to pick you up later. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. I feel like going in every every inch. Sorry. <laughs> That's what she said. I, feel like I, I know that sounds horribly <laughs> dirty, but I'm talking about the Novocaine needle. Okay, let's talk about some murder, shall we? You mean every inch in your mouth? Got oh, it. God. <laughs> oh, stop, stop it, Kevin. I, hey. <laughs> I'm just repeating what you said. Kevin. Jeez, way to turn this sensitive topic about women's pain into something I can't help it if you don't communicate well. Partners in Crime Media.